Welcome to episode 40 of the Thodcast, conversations about animation. Ah oh, yes, a new tens place, 40, the funk of 40,000 years. As we enter into this Halloween season, I am Philip Elke, and I wanted to intro this episode uh, because this is a previously recorded episode where I introduced the show as episode 38, and I didn't want to create any confusion also, just welcoming you to the Halloween season, I guess, where we'll try to keep things sort of Halloween-themed until uh, the end of the month. And yeah, we'll hopefully have the full crew back next week. We actually really want to talk about a certain new movie featuring a certain very famous comic book character that also is uh, partially in keeping with the uh, spooky aesthetic of uh, the Halloween season. Looking forward to that, but for now, enjoy this conversation between myself and Kara Deptula about Jim Henson's Labyrinth. Hey, and welcome to episode 38 of The Thodcast. I'm your host, Philip Elke, coming to you from Hollywood. And today I'm joined by my co-host in the studio. Hey, Kara, how are you doing? Kara Deptula. Great. Things are great. Good, good. Yes, uh, recording this on a chill, a, a chilly down Sunday evening, <laughs> and um, we're going to talk about Labyrinth from 1986, directed by Jim Henson, um, a follow-up episode to a previous conversation about the Dark Crystal. So I'm excited to talk about this. Uh, we, we made references to it last week. Um, I said something about David Bowie going on to uh, perform in a Jim Henson film, uh, like, what, seven years after The Dark Crystal? Actually, uh, I was off. It was four years. This film came out four years after The Dark Crystal. Uh, But, yeah, 1986, 1989, I get those years confused. I mean, a six is basically (laughs) just an upside-down nine. Right. (laughs) You know, speaking of 69, uh, the dark uh, labyrinth, everyone's the uh, you don't get much sexier film than this. But we're not going to talk about all of those various subjects that kind of get brought up in connection to this film, Um, because this is a family friendly show. We talk about animation on the Thodcast, conversations about animation. So we try to keep things appropriate for most, if not all, audiences. Well, let's just dive into Labyrinth. First off, Kara, are you familiar with the area? No. Okay, well, I think this is one of the videos we watched in preparation for this where they referred to, you know, the the whole uh, David Bowie wearing some tight tights and... Oh, that area. Yeah. So, um... Right, we'll, that's, we'll just... that's... They bring it up in... Every review that I watch. Yeah, we'll just leave it at that. Um, this, yeah, is a, is a very fun movie. David Bowie is magnificent. Right, no, but you have to wonder, like, what was Wardrobe thinking? I don't know. Um, I think even David Bowie himself sort of had a especially pronounced uh, raised eyebrow with regard to his wardrobe in this film. <laughs> I mean, it was the 80s, and it was the era of Madonna, Cindy Lauper. Yeah, well, even Robot Chicken made a joke about it in one of their sketches. I saw a video. You know, I, I don't think I shared that one with you, but it's pretty hilarious. <laughs> Depicting no. the kid, uh, Toby, the character Toby, the baby from the, from Labyrinth, I, I really hope I don't start calling Labyrinth the Dark Crystal repeatedly in this review. Uh, but, yeah, Toby is on the couch of a therapist, and uh, he's, you know, trying to uncover some past trauma in his life. And, you know, the therapist is just trying to, to reach back and remember, you know. And he's wearing the same, like, red and white striped <laughs> shirt. As he's reclining on the psychiatrist's couch, and, right? Uh, <laughs> I didn't. I didn't like the baby's pajamas. Yeah, flashes back to him in the the goblins' lair with you know David Bowie, dan- you know, kind of 
uh, twerking and grinding right behind him. <laughs> and that thing, you know. I mean, why, why do you think they went with red and white pajamas? Red's not that great on film. All the, it's not. Uh, yeah, it's a, it was a bold choice. And they just, you know, she has to search for Toby throughout the film. So they just decided why not make him look like one of the most famous people that people search for in, of course, Waldo. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> a, it's a Where's Waldo costume. Right. Yeah, that, Labyrinth. It's a story about a girl who goes to a fantasy world and befriends some fantastical creatures and uh, kind of has to reckon with a villainous or powerful force at the end of it. Uh, parallels plenty of other tales, um, kind of not necessarily classic fairy tales, but more modern, like 20th century tales. Uh, L. Frank Baum with uh, Wizard of Oz, um, Alice in Wonderland. I guess that's more, you know, in, of a classical milieu. But um, what the, you've, you see, I mean, the film opens up in a modern setting. And there are a few different movies like this that that did the that had kind of the bookended suburban um, framing device, like Hook. Uh, you know, you you have the the real world, you know, bookending the fantasy, as well as the Princess Bride with uh, Fred Savage and Peter Falk. Uh, and then this this movie does a similar thing, but yeah, let's uh, start off with the uh, the opening of the uh, introduction of the lead character in her natural habitat. Well, it does start with Al and the CGI. That was cool. It has this opening CGI title sequence, very unique with the computer generated owl, which was groundbreaking at the time. Who apparently was David Bowie. Yeah, the, the Goblin King transforms into uh, an owl. He can, he's seen to transform into a few different, you know, illusions throughout the film. Um, but yeah, full spoilers for Labyrinth <laughs> right. in this episode. He's also hidden throughout the scenery in the film. That was interesting. I mean, there's one really obvious example where if you line up these stone artifices just right, it forms the shape of David Bowie's face. <laughs> but and, yeah, and he's also on the, on her mirror, and he's in her scrapbook. Yeah, I didn't notice that on okay, Sarah's. In the, in so he's on okay. Sarah's mirror in a picture with her mother, her actual mother, and in the scrapbook. Is this Sarah being just like a fan of? Of the real David Bowie? I Well, yeah, see, they think that he, mm -hmm. it may be a sign that he is always watching her. Because, I, I mean, I don't know if David Bowie is supposed to exist in the world of Labyrinth, but um, if, he, if he did and Sarah was a fan, then it wouldn't make sense that immediately, as soon as she saw him, she wouldn't be like, Hey, you're David Bowie. What the hell? You're you're Ziggy Stardust. Right. There are a lot of theories if you look them up online. Yeah. Yeah, more likely those scrapbook things were just Easter eggs. Easter eggs. It's just a little bit of trivia like that is inserted within a film or work of fiction. Uh, like Easter a reference egg. to something else um, that you would pick up on. Uh, basic... I mean, the, I Sarah's room is full of them with all of the books from pop culture and literature. Right, because wild th Where the Wild Things Are is on her desk. Yeah, well, I, we wanted to mention that last episode. I can't remember if we did or and not. And then the other books, Sendak's book. Yeah, Maurice Sendak, who does illustrations kind of similar to Brian Froud, who did the concept art that served as inspiration for both this film and The Dark Crystal. Right, but Sundak wrote the story he, that, that Labyrinth was based from. 
Yeah, I, I guess. Technically, do do you remember what became of that lawsuit? They he they he they <laughs> um <laughs> he they gave him credit at the end, so he has credit. That's and right. And they also his book also was given a cameo at the beginning. Yes. Okay. So I mean, I guess he somewhat he won because they. That's where the story came from. Yeah. Uh, Terry Jones, I know, is credited as screenwriter for Labyrinth uh, from Monty Python. Uh, But he he had plenty of contributors, collaborators. Well, uh, not necessarily collaborators, I don't think. Um, But the, the script did get reworked quite a bit. And the movie was just such a laborious process to make that a lot of stuff just kind of got uh, altered on the day. So he he did note at the end of it all that the you know the final result differed quite a bit from his original script. Hmm. Um, says here on IMDb. Uh, story by Dennis Lee and Jim Henson, uh, screenplay by Terry Jones. Um, I know there was a behind-the-scenes piece I saw that said George Lucas also contributed to the story quite a bit. Uh, That's an interesting note on this where George Lucas was directly involved. He was executive producer on this film. Um, he wasn't involved in The Dark Crystal. However, that film was produced by Gary Kurtz, who was uh, the producer on the original Star Wars and The Empire Strikes Back. He collaborated heavily with George Lucas for those two films, um, but didn't stay on for Return of the Jedi. I think he left to kind of do his own thing. Well, to do like The Dark Crystal, for example. Um, but yeah, Gary Kurtz, I mean, he's a genius in his own right, um, but didn't um, quite get the same level of um, pr- prolific notoriety that George Lucas did. It is odd, considering that Labyrinth did not do very well at the box office, whereas uh, The Dark Crystal did make money, according to the box office returns um so the movie that did have a name like george lucas attached to it actually struggled (laughs) way more at the box office which i find odd considering it was only three years after star wars had wrapped up right and labyrinth was easier to watch i thought well it's i think it's had maybe a better lifespan uh, because it has just that Muppet flavor, it's it's maybe more approachable than the Dark Crystal. I I talked to my dad today, and I told him that we watched it, and he had no idea how I even saw it as a kid. And I'm wondering now how I saw it. Hmm. Um, he doesn't remember me watching it, and I really remember the movie. I. I'm. We're still trying to figure it out. It's one that he's never seen. Well, I was. I'm certainly not overly familiar. In fact, um, it's kind of appropriate that we are talking about Jim Henson properties because uh, this year is like the anniversary of the original Muppet movie, the 40th anniversary uh, of the Muppet movie from 1979, uh, which I've never seen. I'm just, like, as I mentioned last episode, I'm not that familiar with anything Jim Henson or the Muppets. Um, But, you know, why not? All the more uh, reason to revisit it on the podcast here and develop a bit of a familiarity with these cultural touchstones. But, yeah, like, I, I thought this movie was 1989. I was confused on that. I only saw this about a year ago. For the first time. Oh. Yeah, and then had never seen The Dark Crystal until we watched it for the episode. Same. At least getting around to it finally. <laughs> um, yeah, I think Jennifer Connelly, she was only 
15 when this film was released. She's born in December 1970. So she was like 14 or 15 while they made the film. Um, very early on in her acting career, she had really only done some commercials. She has a few film credits, like one or two before this one. And I don't know if those were made first or if this was and it was just released later than those. But it sounded like in the documentary, making up documentary, that she did this as like her first feature film audition, <laughs> which would have been insanely impressive if that were the case. You know, most, most actors have to go through multiple auditions before they you know, book something. I think I heard that she did a lot of modeling because people suggested it, that she hadn't considered acting, and then she mm -hmm. just sort of kept lucking into things. Yeah, she had done commercials for sure. Um, but there were a few other notable actors who were passed over in favor of Jennifer Connelly, including Helena Bonham Carter, Jane Krakowski, um, to, oh, I, I don't even know. I didn't write those down, but... <laughs> I didn't write, yeah. David Bowie, uh, the first choice for David Bowie's role was Michael Jackson. Okay. And so, then yeah. also before David Bowie was uh, Mick Jagger, who I've seen around here, Sting, mm -hmm. who used to work with a really good friend of mine. Um, so Bowie was the fourth on the list. Hmm. Well, he was the perfect choice. I mean, I couldn't see really anyone else in this role, honestly. Mine is his... <laughs> Area? <laughs> um, I was going to call it something else. <laughs> hmm. Sarah is kind of an eccentric girl. Jennifer Connelly probably also was just a very enigmatic person, having gotten this role you know, over so many other actors. Um, just she, she kind of catapulted to stardom and so she clearly has a certain charisma about her well i mean she starts by they these other people talk about her and she they don't talk kindly about her character because she's just constantly angry and having temper tantrums and the baby is against her and is the worst thing that's ever happened to her and the baby's what like eight months old <laughs> Yeah, not pretty young. <laughs> so I mean, she she was a lot of a lot of drama. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, the baby Toby played by Brian Froud's son, Toby Froud. Um, keeping it in the family. Speaking of which, one of the primary new characters, Hoggle, is uh, portrayed and voiced by the son of Jim Henson, Brian Henson. Right, and they said that Hoggle had over had eighteen mechanical, uh, what, like motors, I think, in his face. Just his face alone, let alone the rest of his body. And Hoggle was played by a woman, mm -hmm. and the voice was a man's. Yeah, in co in the costume, it was uh, an actress, and um, there there were multiple puppeteers. This movie incorporates a lot of animatronics, which were Brian Henson's specialty in filmmaking. So yeah, the, that's how they were able to make such convincing looking characters um, using a combination of puppetry and practical effects in this film. This movie just seems to borrow from so many different similar things it's hard to really pinpoint, you know, what could be the ultimate, like... Yeah, I'm just thinking about Jennifer Connelly. Um, I, you know, she's she doesn't start out too great at the beginning. You have to... You grow to like her and her acting. Uh, it gets better as, as it goes on. But her role was... It was very simple. She really just had to be lost and, and scream and search and listen. A lot of the, the Muppets uh, actually had bigger roles than her she seemed to have the most dialogue out of anyone maybe but you know you weren't really 
fighting for her the whole time. I didn't feel like I was. I was more interested to see what character was going to do what around the next corner. You know, when she when she ate the peach, I think I was more upset by the fact that I don't know, it just reminded me of a of just a really bad drug and that the vibes of that I didn't like, but was I did, did I was I scared she was going to die? I wasn't I didn't get very attached to her character. She wanted she had kind of the traditional Disney princess arc of like wanting more, wanting to uh you know, escape her own little world. Right. So there are reviews written about whether everything actually even really happened or if it was in in Sarah's made up little world. Yeah, that's that's kept rather ambiguous throughout the film. And like there are fantasies within the the fantasy. <laughs> yeah, she she's sort of there's the weird like incantation that she does. What is it? You know, if you say the right series of words, these goblins will come and take your baby away. Yeah, but that that part was actually one of the funniest parts of the movie with the goblins saying, shh, 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 and she might hear you. And, you know, oh, she almost said it. And then she doesn't say it. That part was really funny. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there. Yeah, immediately cuts some of the, the tension in the beginning when she's about to banish Toby to the goblin realm. And uh, it just smash cuts to this amalgamation of goblins. You don't really understand what's going on because it just straight up cuts to these creatures. And that's the first you see of the goblin world. Right. The The beginning of the movie really isn't, it's not the most believable no, I yeah. There's a lot of liberties taken with the reality of this world, you know, slash hallucination. And don't get me wrong, I actually really like Jennifer Connelly. When I rewatched the beginning again, I was I was disappointed that it wasn't as great as I remembered in my head. I mean, I enjoyed it. In my well, opinion. I'm talking about the beginning. Of the movie. Oh, okay, okay. Now the rest of the movie, in terms of. The characters, the Muppets, the puppets, the animatronics mm-hmm. was was great. It's an incredible feat of ingenuity and artistry. Um, yeah, the beginning, um, you made a comment about like the stepmother almost chastising uh, Sarah about the fact that she's not going out and doing what no ordinary girls her age do, like going on dates. 15-year-olds, like, my mother was like, no, you won't. No, you cannot date. (laughs) You cannot date until you're at least 16. You will not be dating. So mothers do not say, go out and date at that age. They just don't do it. Well, I don't know. She's a stepmother being a stepmother, I guess, got to find something to complain about, especially when your stepdaughter's trudging in from outside soaking wet. Wearing, like, this Elizabethan gown. Right. And so I think the point of that and saying that was probably so that we could see Sarah's theatrical imagination, that side of her that was this imaginary world person. And that's why people wondered, is this real or is this Sarah's world? I think the overall theme of this movie is about coming of age and being autonomous and independent, uh, not being subjected to dalliances and pressures that you know inhibits you from making your own choices. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I, I I like that part. I think it was great, and it was in the overall movie too. Also with Hoggle. Mm-hmm. Hoggle had to make his own choices of whether to give the poisonous peach to her, her or not. I think the whole message is fantastic. I, minus the area. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she, I mean, she does a great job. She's a very, Sarah, you know, we find out 
is a very strong character and really all she is required to do at the end is resist the temptation of the goblin king, Jareth. And um, it's it's nothing too dramatic. There's not like a big fight scene or anything. But they they do use incredible set pieces to really sell the action, I feel, you know. Yeah, and well, at the end, all she does is realizes she realizes that she has power, mm-hmm. that he has no power over her. And then next thing you know, she's at home with the baby. There, yeah. I mean, you don't really find out what really happens. Mm-hmm. It's very dreamlike and very abstract. And it was also the 13th hour <laughs> with the 13 on the clock. That's not a real time. That, that feels like a... Haunted Mansion reference from, you know, the Disney parks. Oh. Yeah. What came I first? Those, yeah, the Haunted Mansion came first. I think there's a clock displayed somewhere that has 13 on it. <laughs> I don't know if that's the first place that appeared, but it's, uh, it wouldn't be surprising to me if, if that were part of the inspiration, um, you know, along with all the other... You know, works of fiction you see displayed in Sarah's room. Um, yeah, you see Snow White and mm. Seven Dwarfs. Yes, Snow White, poisonous Snow White out of poisonous apple. Yeah, yeah, where the wild things are again, and um, the outside over there story. Outside over there, I'm not super. Familiar. That's that's the book. Yeah, that's really... That's the baby, and yeah. that's the girl on the cover. Yeah, so... Except yeah. the baby's not wearing red and white stripes. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's, uh, I don't know, I, I hear interviews, like podcasts with women talking about like their upbringing and uh, eventual careers in the entertainment industry and... You know, some a lot of them bring up like Labyrinth as being sort of an influence on them when they were younger and having crushes on David Bowie. Um, like, if, if given the choice to live in any kind of fantasy world, they would maybe pick Labyrinth. <laughs> um, but and then at the same time, uh, another character that seems popular among women of a certain age is. Uh, the fox from Robin Hood, <laughs> you know, the the fox Robin Hood from the, I believe, 1973 Disney animated film. Right, but then that little guy in the movie is a fox. Yeah, I, I, I don't think he's, I don't know if it's stated because his design got a little tweaked uh, in, in the process of bringing him to life. But he does look, uh, Didymus does look like a fox. But uh, that's one of the Easter eggs in Sarah's room. She, in her scrapbook, she has a little cutout of uh, the, you know, Robin Hood fox doing uh, uh, the sound of music pose. And then uh, also a cutout of Friar Tuck in there, too. So that that just gave me the spark of, oh, wow, this this movie really is about you know, little girls having these crushes and that sort of... <laughs> Isn't there another yeah. famous fox? Um, Is there a famous... There's something that resembles a fox? Fantastic like. Mr. Fox. There's Star Fox. Fox and the Hound. But there's a fox that was that's there's like that fox. Honest John from Pinocchio. <laughs> um, oh, like, like the fox from... Robin Hood. I I don't know. If no, no, a... like the fox. Like Didymus. Like Didymus. Okay. I feel like there's a Didymus somewhere else. Yeah, I think he started out as like a squirrel, and then became more of like a his face structure became that of like a Jack Russell Terrier. But he's also red and just has a very pointy uh, face, like a fox. So, fox. I, foxes. Know. Fox. Foxes. Uh, they're they're they can be red, yes. He's also very shriveled. There are there are red foxes. No, that's what I'm saying. That's that's why it seems like he has to be a fox if he's this red-looking dog creature with a with a pointy face and a bushy tail. Um, but then he has sort of those uh, frilly, 
um, whiskers on his face that are kind of like a terrier's. But that could just be like he's got a Don Quixote mustache as a fox. Um, and yeah, that's totally his archetype, too, is like this fanciful totally, yeah. Don Quixote, very chivalrous and gallant, but not the most pragmatic character. <laughs> right. What, yeah, what are the famous foxes on? <laughs> I don't know. We, uh, and yeah, Ludo is, is one of the tr- the trio. They're basically Sarah's, you know, the Scarecrow, Tin Man, and Cowardly Lion. Um, just kind of slightly different archetypes right. from each of those. And the conceit was that none of these three sidekick characters would really have anything in common personality-wise with any of the others. So they would kind of form a a complete whole. Right. And another theme in the movie was that nothing was as it seemed. Yeah. Everything kept changing in the labyrinth. It's very abstract. um, And and all using very optically rendered trickery. Not not a lot of computers were used, of course, in making this film. Um, is is mostly just used, you know, accomplished through sets and you know, trick photography. And then another theme would be bribing with gifts. Yeah, yeah, temptation. I don't know, them's my jewels. <laughs> uh, I it made sense that Hoggle was attracted to plastic because I'm sure in his world, plastic's very rare. <laughs> right. Plastic gems. Uh, Jareth certainly knew what plastic was, and one wonders if he might be a transplant from the human world who's now lording kind of reluctantly over the goblins. Right. Who would want to lord over goblins? Yeah, what Someone do? who's really, like, not all there. Yeah, aren't there other, like, humans in this world? Because there is the fantasy sequence in the bubble, the ballroom sequence. But I don't know if that's necessarily a region of the goblin realm or if that was just kind of a another, like, a second layer of hallucination. Yeah, I still haven't quite figured out where that whole ballroom scene came from. But apparently he does try to ke- kiss... Sarah in that scene, and then she she leans she uh, runs away. Yeah, that was that's a very striking scene. It's uh, you know soundtracked to one of David Bowie's several uh, musical numbers he composed for this film. Um, I, I love the music in Labyrinth. That's definitely one aspect that gives it a bit of a leg up culturally over something like The Dark Crystal which just didn't quite have that commercial uh, draw in the form of like a, a main um, stream celebrity like David Bowie. Um, weirdly, though, it's just, you know, Labyrinth, it didn't do anything for the box office, which right. is super strange. There must be some story there where, you know, because The Dark Crystal did end up grossing like $45 million at the box office in 1982. I think they did 50. Well, yeah, 45 to 50 million in 1982. Uh, Labyrinth was, um, and apparently that was released the same weekend as E.T. in December of that year. Uh, Labyrinth's release date is June 27th, 1986. Yeah, well, you know, know they took that that song from uh, an old movie. What song? The Hoodoo Voodoo song came from an old movie. You remind me of the Babe, uh, the Babe with the Power. Da- you know, Magic Dance. That was that was an original song. Well, me. they took some of the lines from an old movie and used them. Really? Huh. Yes. Well, what movie? A very, very, very old movie that neither of us has probably seen. Um, it includes song lyrics that make reference to the 1947 movie The Bachelor and the Bobby Soxer, starring Cary Grant and Shirley Temple. Yes, that movie. Yeah, in which uh, 
And they have a call and reply verse. You remind me of a man. What man? The man with the power. What power? The power of hoodoo. Hoodoo? You do. <laughs> In the magic dance, uh, man is replaced with babe. Hoodoo with voodoo. Um, I, I suppose this song does uh, provide some backstory for Jareth. Uh, but it is kind of vague. You you think initially when he's talking about the babe, he's talking about Toby, who the goblins abducted, um, and he like he's saying this to a goblin. You remind me of so he's telling this goblin henchman. He reminds Jareth of Toby, um, but then he starts singing about his baby, who is crying, you know, who was crying as hard as babe could cry. His love, he's it's uh, like he's reminiscing about a long lost lover. Um, so that could actually be the the true story behind Jareth, where he did have love at one point, and then she, you know, so there's. Left him. There's this whole theory that he met. There's there's always a Sarah. So before Sarah, there was a Sarah that was like a Sarah, this Sarah, and that he is always finding a Sarah and bringing a Sarah Sarah through the labyrinth. I suppose. And yeah. that the first Sarah died. Hmm. So that's why there's a scene where Hoggle was like, "Oh, you're another Sarah." Mm-hmm. Well, no, he doesn't say another. <laughs> But there are theories, mm-hmm. if you go online, about Sarah's. Yeah. There's a, um, I mean, we'll probably wrap this up fairly soon. We're just kind of keeping things casual, as we usually do here on the Thodcast. But um, I, I did want to maybe mention this series that I saw on Netflix, like from BBC, that was strikingly evocative of Labyrinth with uh, like this character who was from this magical realm. Uh, the series is called um, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. I think it's a little bit obscure, but it was really good. It was about like this um, English gentleman who learns magic to save his ailing wife. Um, and But there's this whole Raven King character who looks a lot like you know, David Bowie in the labyrinth. <laughs> he just seems to be styled after him. Um, so, and, and like there's this whole subplot with like the wife character getting um, transported to the magical realm where she's forced to like dance in perpetuity, much like in that dance, you know, ballroom sequence uh, slash masquerade in, uh, in Labyrinth. So just just a lot of striking similarities. Yeah, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, hmm. um, based on a novel by Susanna Clarke. Um, I don't know. I I really enjoyed it, but I didn't hear much about it. Just one of those many many Netflix series that gets kind of lost in the mix. I feel. Yeah, I, I wish I could pull up an image here. Never heard of that. Yeah. Well, you know, there are other things that we can talk about with labyrinth like the uh, door knockers mm-hmm. and the helping hands that were actual helping hands mm-hmm. um that also talked with their hands and the other mm-hmm. character that was a bit uh that was a bit of a trick who looked like the bird but really was a person hmm. oh yeah that, that series is by the way available on netflix uh, it's it's got a 91 percent on rotten tomatoes so definitely worth checking out wow uh, yeah, like the incredible artistry that went into this film. Um, some scarier moments, like I feel like those helping hands would have really freaked me out as a kid until they start making those faces. <laughs> I would have yeah. chosen up. I don't, and but she chose down. Well, it probably was easier on the puppeteers <laughs> instead of having to lift her up, just letting her down. That's true. <laughs> Because uh, yeah, it was an incredible amount of work bringing that set to life, like the crazy rig that they built where performers had to sort of lay prone uh, and stick their hands through these holes in this, you know, in the, in the walls of this pit <laughs> that they actually constructed at Elstree Studios. Oh, and then we should talk about how L- Ludwig? 
Ludwig? How he can summon, uh, he Ludo, summons Ludo, Ludo, Ludo. I mm-hmm. messed it up with the other one in the other movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ludo can summon nature just like Kira did in the Dark Crystal, which, you know, Ludo seems like this like pretty dumb character. Mm-hmm. But then you find out that he has this magical superpower, which he pretty much saved the day when he was um, one in the bog. Mm-hmm. And then also when they went to the castle. If it wasn't for Ludo... They would have not never made it because Ludo summons all the rocks. He he is the Deus Ex Machina of Labyrinth, to be sure. Um, they, there's that kind of epic fight scene at the end. At least that's how it was sort of, um, scripted, but not violent. You know, they wanted to keep things pretty kid friendly. There's no like death or anything. Um, but yeah, the only way that this group of you know, four individuals and a dog are able to uh, take on this army of goblins is uh, <laughs> by Ludo summoning these rocks and um, and the goblins just being generally inept. Right. And then they she gets to the castle and what has he done? But he's fleed. I mean... Really, fled. what a yeah. man! Yeah, yeah. fled, fled. <laughs> and he has fled, but did flee. Um, yeah, because well, if she recovers Toby, why? Why does Jareth even really want Toby? Is it right? Yeah. I think he's. I think it's the whole point of him just trying to. He's bored with. This is what I think. I think he's bored being the Goblin King over all the goblins, and he. I think this is where all the sexual overtones come from, that he finds this girl named Sarah who he finds attractive, creepy, mm-hmm. uh, and so he and he's bored and he wants to play. Oh. And so, you know, he's trying to have his way with her, put her through this little fun game. But at the end, you know, she says, listen, I have more power than you, and she turns him down, basically. Yeah, yeah. The that great uh, M.C. Escher painting, such a cool set piece at the end. And she goes in and she does it on her own because she says that's the way that it's done, that her tribe of little helpers can't follow her. And then the next thing you know is, you know, she stands up to him and then she's back in her room and then she goes and checks on the baby and the baby is there and the baby actually looked cuter there than any other scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she gives the baby her own stuffed animal. So she's ready to give up mm-hmm. that to become a better sister. And, mm-hmm. you know, and then, you know, all the other characters appear and say that they're always going to still be with her. Yeah, there's a lot of symbolism related to just uh, hanging on to baggage and um, just accumulating worthless junk in your life, uh, being weighed down as a as an elderly you know person who's kind of grasping at the uh, hope of the past and and that comes in the form of like the junk uh collectors in the scene um great scene is that after the obliette <laughs> sequence i don't know yes yeah she uh um almost has a chance to like remain in this version of her room that has shown up in this junkyard with all these uh you know, collectors with just piles of junk on top. You know, right, on top. and and it's being in that room where her memory comes back because then she realizes she doesn't want all that stuff. It's just junk. But that's when she picks up the Labyrinth book and she opens it and she sees a line that reminds her of what, that she was looking for something that was other than all these things that this old hag was throwing her. Yeah, yeah. I mean, very fortunate that, there was an exact reproduction of her bedroom in this in this world. Um, it comes crumbling apart, and then Ludo and Didymus and uh, Hoggle come just chasing in. Just they always fortuitously happen to be <laughs> right nearby once uh, Sarah runs into trouble. 
yeah, a lot of moments of her just sort of getting separated from, because you know, at first when she meets Hoggle, he's not uh, a sympathetic character really at all. He's like murdering <laughs> I, uh, fairies. I guess. Yes. I mean, that's it seems to be. He's just straight up like massacring them. Yes, because but because they bite. Yeah, well, no wonder they bite if they're getting exterminated. Um, right, yeah. but I, I think that fairies might actually bite. I don't know. Yeah, maybe they're nasty fairies. <laughs> I don't know. I it's, don't know if all fairies are good. It's very cruel, but yeah, I don't know. Those uh, feisty little fairies. They are portrayed by, like, human actors. You see in some of these effects shots of the fairies up close. So, I mean, <laughs> they would seem to have some level of sentience. I mean, Hoggle's in the service of Jareth to begin with, so he's he's kind of a shady character at, from the get um, and doesn't want to uh, co- cooperate with Sarah. Until he sees her yeah. plastic. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, develops I and just because of Sarah's charm and you know, the fact that Hoggle doesn't really have friends, he uh, you know is drawn drawn to her. Um, she um, introduces him as a friend to that like the wise old man. Right, you know what? And she gives him a kiss. Yeah. I still haven't figured out why she gave him a kiss, but that's a whole other story mm-hmm. in itself of giving him the kiss. But why did she kiss him? Yeah. Was that after? They escape from the cleaners. Oh, that was a freaky sequence. That that's like one of the like legitimate like nail biter sequences in this film. <laughs> when you have that giant drill chasing them down a hallway, oh. it it feels like a set piece from a Resident Evil game. <laughs> yeah, uh, I can't I can't remember where in the movie that that was. It was it was after Jareth had threatened that if she ever kissed him, he would send him to the um, the stench. Hmm. A lot of gray area, I guess, in this film, because, like, Jareth, you know, he's, he's not portrayed as a protagonist, but he's also not, you know, universally revived. He's kind of a celebrated character among fans. And David Bowie's performance of him make, makes him definitely a sympathetic and appealing character overall. But just someone who, you know, has has made some bad choices in his life. And same same with Hoggle. Um, Didymus and Ludo are a little more upstanding. Well, Ludo is very pure-hearted, um, he, but also kind of a, a brute. Um, yeah, a lot of a lot of personality there. Um, he, he kind of looks like a big ape creature, sort of reminiscent of Chewbacca, I feel like, Star Wars. Yeah, I think he, people are saying that he came from where the wild things are. Oh, yeah, very much. Very uh, much a lifelike iteration of one of those characters. Um, yeah, I just like that other little character. He came from somewhere else, too. Mm-hmm. I will not think of it. But did I know mis- that he oh. came from somewhere. I know Peter Jackson did a movie with a bunch of characters that are all very similar. Yeah, Meet, <laughs> meet the Feebles. Um, I did not see that. Which came after Labyrinth. Meet the Feebles is 1989. But features characters that kind of have a resemblance to uh, Jim Henson characters. Yeah, I don't have much else to say, though, about Labyrinth. I mean, it can be talked about really all day. Yeah, yeah, there's so much rich detail. I, I don't know, even for 1986, it was amazing that they were able to accomplish as much as they did with, I guess it was only a budget of $25 million. Um, didn't gross very well initially, but went on to become a very... You know, revered cult classic, and um, I think you know has gone on to be ultimately a, a huge success um, in terms of cultural resonance. Um, and even though Jim Henson, you know, would pass away four years after this film, 
um, he was aware of the fact that this film was getting its due recognition prior to his death. So that was a very um, reassuring moment for him, knowing that Labyrinth wouldn't be forgotten. And I mean, how could you forget David Bowie in a performance like this? Just, I don't know. It's, it's too iconic to ignore. I mean, I, I think overall um, it's you know a more fun movie than The Dark Crystal, but there's also more stuff that gives me pause that makes me question like, oh, really, should I be watching this as an adult? Like, it's just a little, edges a little bit into um, silliness at times. I don't know. I think you mentioned as we were watching, like. <laughs> I, I did. It, you know, after you get, after after watching it for so long, it's kind of like, okay, this is the same thing. Where's the plot? What's going on? I feel like I'm watching something for kids. Yeah. Like, but it, there is a lot of richness to it that transcends just this being some kind of kitty after school programming. I, I liked how The Dark Crystal was a little bit more straightforward um, drama, more suited for adults and, and all audiences. But um, this just has so much going on and so iconoclastic. Um, they're, they're both heavily worth a watch. Um, the music is amazing, and, and yeah, just the, the level of artistry on display is unquestionable. Good to know that we're getting more uh, content of this nature, you know, with the Dark Crystal series, and uh, most likely there will be more Labyrinth uh, being made as well. Because uh, there's there's been rumors of follow-ups to the Labyrinth for a long time. <laughs> um, nothing official as far as I know yet. Um, but yeah, hopefully uh, we'll have more Jim Henson featured here on the Thodcast. Um, thank you, Kara, for being generous with your time and, and joining me in doing this. You're welcome. <laughs> Where can the folks listening find you, Kara? At Kara Deptula on Instagram, C-A-R-A-D-E-P-T-U-L-A. Awesome. Thank you. You can find me, Philip Elke, on Twitter and Instagram, at Philip Elke, uh, P-H-I-L-I-P-E-H-L-K-E. Uh, find Thodcast on Twitter and Instagram at Thodcast, T-H-A-W-E-D-C-A-S-T. Visit Thodcast.com. Find the Thodcast Conversations About Animation on Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts, I do that every time, Stitcher Radio for podcasting, Spotify, I don't even know if they call it Stitcher Radio for podcasting anymore, if it's just Stitcher, I... <laughs> um, uh, the Spotify, SoundCloud is where we host the program, um, and uh, I think that'll do it for now, uh, anything else to say before we sign off? No, but it took me a really long time before I knew how to say your last name. Yeah. Well, same for you. I, I didn't know <laughs> the exact uh, emphasis. And people still cannot say it, even if they know it. No, exactly. Mine. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, you all have a magical day and a wonderful week. Mm-hmm.